Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by my friend and Loyal Liberty editor, Brian Smith, for our sixth conversation on Peter Lawler. Peter was a mentor to many people, primarily as a teacher and through his books. And of course, on the podcast, we have also talked to many of his friends. But today I talked to Brian, who is a dear friend and in a way co-conspirator. And like me, Brian has a very deep relationship with Peter's writings and has learned much about how to look at America and how to think about our modern situation from Peter. But I shouldn't speak for you, Brian. Uh, Usually you do that for me as my editor and indeed shepherd, so to speak, in the pastures of the discourse. So please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us about your work before we get to Peter. So I am the managing editor of Law and Liberty, which is a project of Liberty Fund, an Indianapolis-based nonprofit dedicated to the study and teaching and propagation of ideas of liberty. I've worked there for about two years. Prior to that, I was a professor for about a decade at a big public university in New Jersey, Montclair State University, and studied at Georgetown, where I earned my political theory PhD. That was where I met Peter about 17 years ago, as near as I can reckon. My work has largely focused on Walker Percy, Edmund Burke, Adam Smith, and Alexi de Tocqueville. My book is Walker Percy and the Politics of the Wayfarer, which came out in 2016. And I co-edited University of Kentucky Press's political companion to Walker Percy with Peter. And that came out, I think, in 2013. So you come from academia and from the conservative side, but are now engaged in a more practical version of education, the refining and enlargement of the public views to apply to political opinion, what the Federalist says about the legislature and politics more broadly. So, Brian, since we're talking about Peter, tell me, how did you meet him and how did you come to read his books and to the study of America through Peter Lawler's pithy phrases and incisive analysis? So I I have to confess a little embarrassment here. I, I had no idea who Peter Lawler was when I first met him. Two friends of mine said, hey, we should go have dinner. You know, we're, we're going to dinner with Peter. And, and they, they said it with these sorts of reverent tones. And, and I'm like, Peter... I, I don't know who this is. And uh, and so we went. We met at a Chinese restaurant in Washington, D.C., downtown somewhere. And that was my first encounter with his sort of soft-spoken Southern witticisms and offhand remarks. And it was it was an interesting conversation. I wish I could remember more of like what he said then. And that, that was my first exposure. And I started seeing his name, you know, knowing who this was. I would click on it the links when I saw his name on pieces. And uh, not too long after that, I was, you know, browsing through the library stacks looking for some secondary literature on Tocqueville for a paper. And lo and behold, the restless mind. So I checked it out and read it. And I think it flew entirely over my head the first reading. (laughs) You know, I'm a 23-year-old graduate student in political theory with virtually no religious background. So I had no idea what I was touching on and reading. And other than the sense that this is really interesting and challenging. And there's something comprehensive in his understanding of what's going on in Tocqueville that I was hearing from my, my teacher, Josh Mitchell at the time, in courses on Tocqueville. So in, in a way, I was a little prepared for, for what Peter was doing, but this sort of comprehensive religious understanding, I just wasn't ready to hear it yet. And uh, so as time went on, I would, I, you know, I would see Peter more often. I was involved with Patrick Dean's founding of the Tocqueville Forum at Georgetown which invited many speakers over the course of the few years I was I was still at Georgetown. And we had Peter come three or four times at least during that time. And every time I would get to spend some time with him, talk with him. Early on in this time, you know, a mutual friend of ours, you know, who also knew Peter, encouraged me to read Walker Percy. And uh, I started with some of his essays and read Love in the Ruins, started reading Lawler's work on him, and very quickly realized this is the thinker that I eventually want to spend a lot of time with. When I started writing about Percy, Lawler was, you know, very enthusiastic. You know, he published my first co-authored piece on Percy and Tocqueville and their, you know, contrasting views of the democratic spirit. And uh, he was a supportive person in my life, never, never sort of constantly in contact, but he always sort of flitted into my life and had a supporting word or a helpful suggestion or an introduction that would later get me my book contract for Percy. And that was my experience of him. He was this sort of steady presence as a wise 
counselor and helper and was always ready with encouragement and thought about my work. And yeah, I, I introduced me to many younger people too. And in a way, he introduced me to you because of the postmodern conservative blog. Yes, that's exactly right. One cannot but trust anybody who is a friend of Peter Lawler. You'd sense the intoxicating character of shared intellectual loves of the humor of watching the political situation with an insightful eye. And that makes all the passion of friendship so much more readily available. I didn't know that Peter helped you professionally, but of course, in a way, it's suspected since that light touch and helpful practical activity was the correlative of his witticisms and his ironic demeanor. I hear more and more from people about the ways in which Peter helped them professionally, and it suggests he had an eye for talent and he had a willingness, and perhaps this is stranger still, an ability to help people do what they are good at fit them institutionally or with encouragement for the things that they are supposed to achieve. I think that's also why people have such warm feelings for him. A lot of us owe him some of our development, both professionally, intellectually, and in a way even morally, I think. I owe some of my moderation to Peter. He encouraged my humor more and my obscurity less, and that made a very big difference for me as a writer. And over time, I came to think of it also as an intellectual contribution, as advice he gave me on style that gradually made me understand democracy better. As you were suggesting earlier, the democratic spirit is a curious thing, and it takes some practice to realize how to deal with people and where you yourself stand to them. So this is yet another new thing that uh, nevertheless fits into the portrait of Peter that we have been collecting here at the American Cinema Foundation over the last six weeks now. You worked with him on this political companion Walker Percy, and I'm surprised and pleased to hear that he also helped you to your own Wayfarer book. So how about you tell us about these things before we get on to Peter's Tocquevillian analysis in The Restless Mind? Sure. So I was at an American Political Science Association conference, and he did as he always did. You know, I would be in the audience at a panel he was on, and sort of where where the big kids were talking, he would invite us over, you know, me and other younger scholars, and invite us to drinks or a meal after. I can't remember which it was. We were talking afterward, and he said something to the effect of, well, if you want to be entrepreneurial, I was talking about this piece on Love and the Ruins I had. He had asked me what I was working on. It was this piece that I, I tried to get published multiple times, got rejected multiple times. And he's like, well, if you want to be entrepreneurial, I have a standing offer to do from Steve Wren at Kentucky, which is where he was then. I think he's the University of Notre Dame editor now to do one of these volumes. And if you want to do it with me, you know, obviously it would fit in that very nicely. And so I was sort of, you know, I, I was, I think, just starting my my professorship and needed a big project for the first year or two to show everybody, if nothing else. And it seemed like a really great idea. I, I hadn't edited a volume before, but it was a great experience. We sort of drew up our list of who were the best people we could get and that we think are interesting on Percy. And one of them, it turns out, is my editor now, Richard Reich. You know, his student, Elizabeth Amato, friend of mine, former teacher of mine, wrote a piece on Percy and desegregation for it. We got Ralph Wood to write on Percy's biography. And it was, it was a delight to edit these various essays and slowly have this book take shape over the course of about a year. We co-wrote the introduction. I, I felt like, I don't know, you can't be a third wheel on a, on, on a two-person thing, but, <laughs> but there's this, he, he sends me this mellifluous, beautiful, thoughtful survey of Percy's thought and life. And says, you, know, you add something to this. And, and mine was a very workmanlike, you know, march through what we were doing in the book. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> but I mean, other co-authors have said this, that like sort of Peter would hand them this work of sprawling, interesting thinking. And he'd say something like, well, you're sort of like work to this. So you feel, you feel inadequate to the task when you're working with Peter. That was my experience. But I, I think it was a great experience of working with him and seeing how he thought about various pieces, how we approached editing each of these essays together. It, it, was, it was a great introduction to seeing how he thought about dealing with senior scholars in particular, like, you know, their sense of, well, we can't, we shouldn't press this person too much on this point. It, it's so essential to what they're saying. And we really need to talk, have them talk about this more because that's where they're best. We had those sorts of conversations multiple times about it. And in a way, that, that, that's the kind of sort of thing that got me thinking about how to be an editor now that has been incredibly useful in an unexpected way because I never expected to be in the public sphere as an editor. I thought I would be a teacher for my taste. 
so that so that was the political companion. You know, he I, I think encouraged me very early on before I even had a book idea to to write something. It's like, well, somebody should write a comprehensive book on Percy. And I, I thought about it for a long time. And he was the one that introduced me uh, to the Roman and Littlefield people who I ended up publishing with. In a, in a number of different conversations, I think I, I had written half of the book before I quite realized my thesis, which was, if we want to talk about Percy's politics, it's man never quite at home anywhere, whether in his own family, his church, his community, his politics, and that any adequate politics we would need to think through would have to sort of reckon with that fact of our of our incompleteness in the here and now and draining toward an end that can't ever be realized here. I, I attempted to write a book that I think is pretty different than than what everybody except Peter did. You know, most people who write about Percy do the here's a novel or here's Lost in the Cosmos or here are his essays and let's do a chapter on each of those. And and there are lots of great books that have done this, but the, the book I wanted to write was what thematically is going on in Percy's thinking? How can we understand the critique he has of modern society as a thematic story? You know, what's gone wrong in modern man's thinking? How can we understand his restless attempts to build perfection in his thought, in his community, in his church? And and what's the answer? And so I, I attempted to thematically build out a book around those lines. And, you know, he uh, he wrote the blurb for it right before he died. I received it from the press I, I don't know if I actually accomplished what he said. I'd like to think I did. And uh, I, I tried drafting an email back to him multiple times. Couldn't quite come up with words. And one morning was sitting down, you know, it was like writing another paragraph. And then I got an email from his former student, Elizabeth Amato. Did you hear the news? Peter had died. So I, I never got a chance to thank him. And it, it um... I know what you mean, Brian. The series of podcasts we're doing is dealing with this debt of gratitude we have, and that is also built into our friendships and our attempts through writing and scholarship to preserve what we can of Peter's insights and of his generous spirit. You, you can't do for your mentor what your mentor does for you. It is not possible to repay things in that way. It's instead exactly this notion of thinking about what Peter himself owed to Walker Percy and so on and so forth in a kind of tradition that we are trying to preserve that makes it possible to deal with the problem of gratitude without becoming ourselves ingrates. Mm -hmm. We can make sure that we keep the best of this tradition going or at least allow if another Peter should come up or some great thinker that he should have access to all these things. As you say, working as an editor teaches you much about judgment, how to deal with people and how to understand what it is that they can offer. That too is tied up with friendship and perhaps editing volumes and being part of edited volumes, which was sometimes it seems like Peter's chief activity since he was involved in so many, mm -hmm. puts together teaching and publishing, dealing with the audience who cannot have recourse to intimacy, whom you do not know personally. It is somewhat abstract, and there's always a question of what is it that you can preserve in writing of human being? I've thought about this more than usually because of this series of podcasts. There's not that much of friendship that you can preserve in recorded form. Conversation primarily is what you can do, but you cannot adequately express the trust and the love that is involved in friendship. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the reputation Peter had. There was always something mysterious about him. Partly it was his ironic touch, but I think that was itself, to a large extent, the awareness of this other fact that people can't exactly express to each other why they owe something to this man. Why does he have such a reputation? You cannot fully explain these things, but you can be a part of them, and you can, of course, help other people behave in a manner that engenders trust and loyalty and rewards them. Mm -hmm. It is a remarkable thing to see bloom the possibilities of learning and activity that allow us to help each other out. That, if anything, grounds hope. That is the constant thing in the, as you said, ever-shifting in constant world of our homelessness. Why should we not despair if we know, indeed, as Walker Percy says, that we're never going to be fully at home in our affairs. We always want too much from our various doings, and we, at some level, suspect that we fall short, and perhaps even that we must fall short. Our incompleteness is something terrible, ultimately tied up with our mortality. 
indeed with Percy, Peter Hadis, Pascalian side, you just have to face up to the fact that it's not even bad enough that we are mortal, we're also terrified of it. And if that weren't bad enough, we also hide, yeah. lie to ourselves about it. The more we realize what our situation is, the worse we make it. That is the tragedy and comedy of being human. Friendship, to a large extent, is an antidote to that. Somehow, and this is part of what's miraculous about being human, sharing this miserable burden of mortality makes us better. It is easier to bear when you are not alone. The importance of a mentor, of a man who has skill, talent, wit, and the love of other people who can share in any of what he does, a lot of that, I think, has to do with... Their ability to make connections between people and see what is best in each other. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think that's it, Brian. No, Self-knowledge isn't self-obsession. It's not me asking, what can I get out of my day? What can I get out of my life? How do I get the most desperately out of my mortality? It's instead knowing what kind of human beings there are, what types they are, how they are, why they are the way they are, what can I do about it? You figure out that way that here and there you can be helpful. That is to say, it is not merely a matter of having good intentions. It's not merely a matter of trying to be nice. It's also a competence, a kind of human power to help other human beings. He was a master at that. When I think of the, it's not the advice about particular passages. It's not the, uh, the sort of edits he gave me or thoughts he gave me on like pieces in general. No, no, the thing I think about with Peter is he really was one of the most incredible people I've ever met at figuring out who I should know and why I should know them and just sort of nudging us toward one another or hosting us together at a dinner or whatever it was and letting those relationships bloom. You know, there are other people in my life who did something similar, but Peter was more influential than any of the others. And when I think of what other people say about him as well, this was like his greatest gift to most of the intellectuals I know was to show them what friendship looked like intellectually and to place them into the orbit of one another. And in a way, like I kind of wonder whether that wasn't part of why he was gravitated toward Percy, that the ultimate antidote such as it is to, as you say, all the miseries of our existence, the only antidote other than a profound faith in God that's transformative is to actually have friends here who can share this, the trials and the day-to-day experiences with. And I think given that that is the antidote that Percy himself works through, whether it's in his linguistic philosophy or in the novels themselves. I never asked Peter about that, but I, I wonder if that isn't part of what drew him to Percy's mode of thinking and being. Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, Peter was always saying we have to be more relational. And in a way, it was so easy for Peter to say that because he knew what it meant, because he was so good at being relational in all these ways, involving all these people. We aren't all good at figuring out who should know whom, where it is that love can bloom. And our rejection of our relational nature has so much to do with our desperate desire to assert our individuality. In some way, we think of our individuality as a rejection and as some kind of opacity. It starts with something like a name. You know, if you mispronounce somebody's name, they're likely to get angry. And I think that means that people who know your name probably know something about you. They're, they're tied up with you. To allow yourself to be judged by somebody who is a stranger or to allow yourself to be taught to overcome your natural reluctance to share your own identity is, in fact, very difficult. Perhaps with Peter it was easier because he was never pushy. He was ironic. His generosity never came across as heavy-handed. He was a teacher, but he wasn't about teaching people lessons. Nobody wants to be on the receiving end of that. And that's indeed part of the mystery of being relational. How can you share your being with somebody else and they still get to stay who they are in their individuality? You somehow have to safeguard the fact that we still have to be individuals. We can't get lost in simply an enterprise. We can't become impersonal. Relationality cannot become losing yourself in membership. You cannot simply be a member of a greater whole. You have to be the whole that you are already as well. Mm -hmm. The two are somehow caught up together. And those are all the temptations in a way that I think Peter was so great at exposing the ways in which we might fall into. And, and this is true whether he was writing about TV shows like Girls or, or Pick the Most Recent Thing or whether he was dealing with pure philosophy. You know, he would point out things. And I really wish he was here to talk about Antifa and these other movements that like these are people in search of evading the self in community. And they're lost in these longings. And this is where the human being both is most self-destructive and destructive of other things. We can't approach the community or any of these other abstract entities as if they can fulfill us. 
And he was always keenly aware of that without, like, without, as you say, trying to sort of teach somebody a lesson that, like, well, if you do this, bad things are going to happen. It was always sort of this gentle, humorous, well, well, look at this mess they've got themselves into. Yeah, you know, you have to make allowance for human frailty, among other things, for the fact that we all have to learn for ourselves in a way. We have to consent to being taught, even. Because he had that quality, he also saw that, as you say, often we want to push things, force things, either to a kind of liberty that requires that we destroy everybody else, or a kind of community with everybody that ends up destroying them just as well, since it does not allow them to be who they are. Man is somehow both a part of humanity and the whole, each one of us individually. This is what is so mysterious about us that Peter called the person. Part of that is, as you say, he had a deep hope in Jesus Christ. That made it okay to be human. But of course, then there's the matter of dealing with current affairs, and those cannot simply live on hope. You have to judge, you have to look around, you have to see what, what's eating people. This restlessness that, after Pascal Tocqueville identifies in Americans, that pushes people in, into madness. We have the desire to say that we're happy. Every aspect of American life is surveilled willingly by all of us to discover happiness and the possible treason that is unhappiness. Before this epidemic or after it ends, it'll happen again. You sit down at a bar somewhere, somebody will ask you whether you're fine. And you had better say you're fine or that this one drink will make you fine. Mm -hmm. That's at the everyday level at which this happens, and it cannot stop because we all desperately want to be happy, and we fear that if any unhappiness should happen, it's going to spread, it's going to be contagious, because we're aware of how brittle it really is. So also, therefore, when the brittleness is proven, people go in this other mad direction, trying to destroy everything because it's a sham, and try to rebuild something desperately in its place, a true community, one which nobody can deny or escape, which of course leads to violence. We seem to be going through this cycle all over again. Partly it's just the national character, it's the democratic problem. We each of us assume the kinds of burdens of individuality that used to be reserved for the protagonists of novels. No, I, as you were talking, I was beginning to wonder, did Peter ever write about Catcher in the Rye? Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether I've stumbled across it, but, but you know, Holden Caulfield calling everybody out as phonies and like destroying everything around him. <laughs> This is an old pattern, and, and it's a pattern Peter would have had great sport with. And I kind of want to now go, go and do a Google search and find out if he ever did write directly about Holden. I don't know. I think he, I remember him calling it whiny sometimes. That was a favorite adjective. Peter called Marcus Aurelius whiny as compared to the slave stoic Epictetus, who was freer and happier. Mm -hmm. That was my reaction when I first read the book. And I think most people, I think that's the normal reaction. The scholarship can't really counterfeit that. It can only elucidate the grounds of it. It lacks some of this stoic strength that tells you, yeah, there'll be a certain amount of misery in life. Our nature is in certain ways slavish, as Aristotle would say. But of course, there is a temptation to say that we will be changing the situation entirely. We'll be making a fresh start of things. Of course, making a fresh start of things is as old as America not something that can be taken out of American politics even without destroying the national character. So why national history is such a problem? It's very hard to tell people to hold on to the past when they want to make a fresh start. If in their own identity they want a new identity, how are they going to? <laughs> well, and and I, I think this is one of these interesting insights that Peter drew out of Tocqueville, that this is how Americans' default tendencies show our longings for greatness, but our skepticism that it can actually be achieved and our skepticism toward those who personally achieve it. That this, this angst over inequalities, this angst over standing apart from the crowd leads us to sort of constantly nod ourselves and undermine past greatness. I mean, just to talk about something emblematic of that right now, all the tearing down of statues. I mean, this, you know, Peter would have probably would have predicted this was going to happen ahead of time in direct ways that iconoclasm is a natural outcome of American schizophrenic pursuit of greatness. Yeah, that's a very good phrase. We see in the statues great men, and we also want to destroy them because we would want to replace them. And if we fear that we cannot replace them, that does not lead us to hold on to the examples of greatness we have because we become resentful instead. Why should somebody else get greatness if I am not going to get it? That combination of envy and resentment is indeed very potent and very dangerous because it leads to taking abstract statements or ideologies very, very personally. 
It's not that Americans today are so well educated in some kind of ideology that the young are starting a revolution. It's that, in a way, they're the worst educated Americans ever, which makes it so easy to say, well, since I'm damaged goods, everybody else is going to have to feel my pain. Mm -hmm. We are going to turn towards an ideology that justifies being damaged goods by damaging everything around. The recent enthusiasm to look at everything as ugly and worth destroying is very much tied up with this notion that we ourselves are compromised, that we believe certain things that crisis after crisis has denied us. It's no longer even possible to believe that, yeah, you know, it'll get better later. It's very easy to give in to this opposite of the passion for normality and niceness, the passion for reckonings, drawing accounts, and then settling them, if possible, violently to make sure that we're heard. Right, right. And and I, I think this is something Peter, in a way, he saw this kind of accelerated motion of this stuff coming. I didn't reread any of that, but I think back to some of his like TV reviews from the early 2000s to late 2000s. You think of like, this was the rise of prestige TV again. This was the rise of the, oh, we can't have unambiguous heroes anymore. We have to like sort of constantly scratch at the underbelly, the real quote unquote motivations for people. And so if if, if we show the great men as being, the great men of TV and women of TV as being damaged goods, that will somehow purge us or like set us the right way. And he was on to, he he had a nose for where this was headed as a matter of national culture. And in a way, I think, you know, the story we might tell from Sopranos and this sort of like wounded man inflicting injuries on the world. What is this but his like children in the streets acting out that kind of narrative against everyone, not just his fellow mobsters, not just random you know people who happen to come into his orbit? That, that was something he was on to. Yeah. Peter was a big watcher of prestige television, and unlike most conservatives, it's not because he was trying to be seduced by it. Nowadays, one is familiar with conservatives who praise everything from country to God and who claim that they love Game of Thrones, (laughs) even though it's soul desiccating. People who want to be both edgy and moral. Peter did not have that attitude. He used to say that if you watch these shows on HBO or what have you, you will see straight from the horse's mouth the evidence that to some extent conservatives are right and in an important way liberals are wrong. The report from the front lines of transgressive identities is a misery that leads to a desire for revenge. After an age of celebrity worship must come an age of statue toppling, cancellation. And Peter saw years in advance that this had come to hit our elites. They no longer could believe in the fantasies of liberalism. He would point out that if you look at this crazy show on HBO that you mentioned, Girls, there you see that the fantasies of Sex and the City or 90 sitcoms like Friends have all failed. Mm -hmm. The life of individualism isn't leading anybody to happiness. In fact, it's leading them to self-hatred. Having learned from Tocqueville and Peter to see how restless Americans are, one notices that in America you can hear 25-year-old women, 30-year-old men say that they feel old, (laughs) passed by, because a new meme or some new technology has shown up. They're of course indeed ridiculous, but it does speak to something potent and in a way dangerous. What happens if people feel life has passed them by? They might go down quietly, but they might not, because in a way the nation is responsible for their fantasies. Right. Right. And, and, but I mean, so, so what, what I think is really interesting about Peter's thinking and his just like arc as a thinker is that if you go back to the very beginning, the restless mind, all the essential themes that he ends up deepening and developing elsewhere are present in that book. But the key that we don't have anymore, in essence, as a country that Tocqueville said we only sort of had then were a set of relatively consistent means of coping with our restlessness. A set of, you know, scripts and habits and virtues that would actually lead us back away from restless self-annihilation. You, you know, you talk about the arc between, say, Friends and Sex of the City, each about 10 years apart, and then Girls is, well, these are people whose older siblings had the last vestiges of scripts and habits to not go totally insane in having these experiences. And their younger siblings or children didn't even have that. And this is the world we're now in of, unless you're in the tiny minority, I think it is at this point a tiny minority of children who are raised in a very, very tight-knit community, catechized into a religious doctrine deeply, not just sort of superficially, and maintain these connections through your early adulthood. 
of course you're going insane because there was there's nothing left in our culture that's sort of like the default background noise that you get restrained by. I mean, I I think of um, you know people often say you know like someone wants to bring back the 1950s, and I remember Peter called the permissive age. I think it's permissive era about how the 1950s really weren't like very restrained at all. They, they, they were already beset by Freudianism and these sort of pursuits of scientism that hollowed out the things that actually made life worth living and that moderated our, our excesses. And that insight, like, I mean, right now, I mean, if you, you know, you talk about what would it take to bring us back from the brink? Well, it's the conscious rebuilding of relationships that sort of create these virtues and patterns to imitate for other people. Because it's not, I mean, in a way, it can't, this sort of change can't come institutionally. I think he probably would mock the integralists for thinking that it could come legally. (laughs) Yeah, traditionalists have their hopes in the right place, but their grasp of reality is partial. They're aware they're inheriting a ruin, but they don't realize that that doesn't mean you can wish yourself into a more moderate way of life. You cannot impose it. It's a lot of practical things that, as our technological overlords would say, don't scale well. Mm -hmm. You cannot turn friendship into the fantasy of friendship without it becoming another TV show that runs for a couple of seasons and then everybody's back to their misery. And these things gradually get darker. Because indeed, as you say, people who had at least one foot in the world before everybody became a liberated individual had some better habits of dealing with life. But their minds were clouded. They thought they could live one foot in each world. Nowadays, young people are various kinds of crazy because their minds are not clouded. Since they are not split in between two worlds, it is only too obvious this is not working, that we're living in a crazy time. Mm -hmm. Neediness is much more acutely felt, and it's encouraging people to reach for crazy ideas. It would be cruel to simply tell young people, wishing don't make it so. It's the kind of truth one might learn from people one does trust, respect, love. But in absence of that, it's not really available. Whereas destroying this corrupt arrangement, that's unfortunately widely available now. Mm -hmm. It's easy to subscribe to the madness retail, as it were, on social media or, you know, going to burn something down one night of the week in the full knowledge that actually will be super safe. There's not going to be consequences. Yeah, I mean, but as a father, I worry about, like, this is the world without patterns, without authoritative patterns my children are coming of age into. I mean, they're they're nine, seven, and four, and not aware how bad it is, except in the sense that, you know, you can't, you can't shield them from coronavirus. You can't shield them from seeing that things are not as they ought to be. But I, I definitely think that this is the... One of the legacies, you know, Peter bequeaths to me in a way is just, you know, having introduced me in a deep way to Percy, who in turn makes me think more deeply about, well, I can't, as you say, you, we can't just tell kids, oh, well, you know, this is a mess and I'm sorry. You have to set out patterns of life that are actually an alternative to the corrosiveness, to the, the sort of acidic forces in, in the wider culture they're going to encounter very soon. And that's the great challenge. I mean, and, and the thing is, as a... You can't, I I found as a college instructor, you couldn't really offer much to students there. You could provide them tools for which they might build those patterns for their children in turn. You could show them patterns of things. This is something attractive, which you might be turned by. But that's a, that's a very limited role. I, I, I think Peter was a master of it. And you have to, you have to sort of be happy with the relational bonds that it helps you build and, and the way you can see them reverberating in the world, you know, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, what Peter's activity proves is how strong, flexible networks really are. This is something that Havel got at in the second half of his Power of the Powerless. He points out that we're not going to be able to go into a future that looks like 1900 again. Mass parties, democratic politics as a national creed, and we'll move along happily. All of that is gone just as shortly as communism has to go. But we will need some more flexible view of institutions. You have to believe in things that you have tested, and that means also people you have known. Mm. That You can get a strong faith from that because it's proven. But they also, again, don't scale well. They're particular. They're the people we know. There are other people who know other people who behave in the way that they do. You see some of that on social media where people care less and less about an authoritative point of view and more and more about the local identity group that the other ones don't even know exists, much less have an opinion about. Because those are closer to reality. 
at various levels of intensity and of seriousness, of soundness of opinion, this thing seems to be replacing the passive audience that was typical of things until recently. The notion of an individual freedom trying out identities is nuts, and instead it's trying to find identities that are shared, elective affinities. Well, well and it's, it, it's ephemeral because... So I had a friend that once tried to convince me that, having read Tocqueville, that social media could provide an adequate substitute for associational life. And I've been skeptical about that for a long time because of how ephemeral, and as we're seeing now, well, a, a community can be suddenly canceled by Twitter. The medium via which you're bonding can shut you down. And if that doesn't, and the other thing is, if it's this kind of free-floating abstract set of interactions between dozens and dozens of people, which never translate into real life encounter, face-to-face encounter, and, you know, and sort of tight-knit groups of a, of a handful of friends that, that actually engage with one another's lives, I hesitate to see how it could actually shape things. Like, you know, okay, so we play board games as a family. And uh, I could go on Twitter and find all the board gamers out there and we could sort of have our little community. But like, we're a bunch of people talking about games that you have to physically meet to play. And <laughs> there's, something, there's something missing there if that doesn't actually ever happen. Yes, social media would have to follow through with this transformation we see in the internet. I'm old enough to remember an earlier internet where everybody was anonymous, defined by privacy, slow speeds and uncertain connections and no map. You mm-hmm. just had to go looking. Well, there's a second internet now where everything is indexed, everything is public, nobody is a secret, and which is not about escaping out of the world, it's about getting back into the world. It's Google Maps, time-oriented as well, with live information from other users, like ways for people who get on the road, and so also with everything else. And Let me show you how I could be authentically like everyone else on Instagram. Of course, there's a danger to that, but Zuckerberg, who owns Instagram, says that he wants to use it for commerce so that people get something in the real world out of their pretty pictures so that in some sense, at least, it's useful, not just pretty. And that would mean a real-life connection if only to your bank account and to some property. But social media would have to indeed go back to the real world and lead to people meeting to be localized rather than global in some vague sense. It would have to play up identity rather than fantasy identities that you try on and take off. Because as you say, if you're talking about things that you'd rather be doing, you have to get from the talking to the doing. That is true of absolutely everything practical. What Aristotle would say, we learn practical sciences for the sake of action. We want to judge better so that we can do better. But indeed, we are trapped. America failed so badly that everybody wanted to run out to the internet, which you can see in these depressive charts that people post of where people find their love. Yeah, It's on social media. That accounts for half of people meeting each other. And what doesn't account for anything anymore? Neighborhood, church, family, school, college, and work. Being introduced by a close friend. That was how my wife and I met. Well, I mean, that's a very rare one. Authentically countercultural. Yeah. <laughs> so you see here that people have run out of the world onto social media. But as Peter would say, you know, if you're not a person, if you're just a ghost, you have to get back to the real world. Somehow we have to figure out these two things. One of them is how do these tools help? Zuckerberg is right. They'll help commerce. People will be able to work from home and sell through a combination of Facebook and Instagram. For people who have family, that's very good news. And aside from the tools, therefore, there is this other problem. While we are stuck in a ghost world online, it would be good if we could, instead of turning to the sort of orchestrated humiliations and violence without consequences of the woke era, to find advice. What you can get in speech from other people really is only advice and occasionally some useful information. That's something that social media could contribute to a society where trust in a community has simply been broken alongside the community. Americans have more internet than they have family. Young people, the new generation, is not married. So one assumes that the only way to get back to the real world is through this strange other technological world. So the question is, if if, if they had hired Peter to be a consultant to some tech company, what would he tell them? Well, come up with a technology that actually functions like Tocqueville's newspapers and drives people back to the concreteness of their local lives. Because if it's if it just happens in the abstract ghost world of the internet, it like you say, it's not real. But we clearly need a means of bonding and communicating over shared interests, loves, fears, needs. 
that our technology affords us the ability to do this in a way that's beyond I go to my local store or, or Trading Depot and see a, a news poll poster. We're way beyond that technologically. But in a way, we've lost all of that habitual concrete interaction and ability to think relationally in the process of moving from analog you know, to digital. And that's the problem. Like, how, how do you advise these tech companies to create a product that will actually give people not just what they think they want or invent a desire, but what they desperately need, which is the concrete associational? You know, somehow American life was robbed of friendship and of the long-lasting relationship that assure you that there are people who know who you are, what you've been through over a long period of time. They didn't just show up and they aren't liable to just disappear. It becomes repellent how much we are strangers to each other whenever strangers in authority dispose of our fate. All of a sudden, the character of the modern world, the indirection, institutions that are cages, all of this stuff becomes angering. We want to use it as weapons against each other, or we experience it as a nightmare that we would like to escape. These are not institutions that form our character, that ask the best of us and reward it neediness shows that we were aware that we need something better and we're not sure however either how to get it or that we deserve anything better that's the limited insight that antifa and occupy wall street before it actually had which is they're on to the fact that there is something messed up it maybe didn't come i mean it i guess i'd argue it didn't come from corporate life it came from the broader problem of american restlessness that's unaddressed by the things that used to moderate it now you know, so it, it, you know, seeks fruit from something that's been neutered, which is socialism. I mean, this idea that we can geld the young and bid them to be fruitful, to borrow that line from Lewis, I mean, is, is at the core of what they're doing. They want the function, but have taken away the organ. And in a way, corporate America has done the same thing. Like, it wants all of this sort of like common spirit of the 1950s corporation but which in turn relied on a kind of greatness that America itself had at that time. And no one's going back to square one to think about where they need to start building. They're starting three or four steps down the line with foreclosed possibilities and demanding these things of people who don't have the capacities to accomplish them. And whether it's the socialist or the corp, you know, corporations or government itself, I see these exhortations and I, and I see Peter sort of wry smiling. Things are getting better and things are getting worse and it's all happening at the same time. And there's no, there's nothing to be done but to build on the good and to remedy the bad that's available. We indeed have to see the good that we have because it's what we deal with now. And it is indeed a very confused situation since it's good that we are waking up to how crazy things have been for a generation or two. But of course, there's also the bad stuff that we are waking up to and our reactions to it are often bad. This notion that we will leap into the Great New Deal socialist paradise is childish. It can serve to an extent as a front for a takeover tech and government ruling America without consent. That actually is being done in certain limited ways. Yes. We realize how powerless we are, and that does give rise to these stupid fantasies that if you just wish angrily enough, then that's somehow going to make things better. But it's powerless. It doesn't even face how serious the problem is. Maybe in a way what's worse is that it denies the good that we have, which is our realization that we didn't rush into this for no reason. We were looking to escape some problems with community. And we have a certain desire to rebuild certain forms of association that were decaying for a long time. You, know, you can say that moral bankruptcy in America is just like bankruptcy in Hemingway's book. It happens gradually and then suddenly. And the sudden part is so obvious that people think they can suddenly will their way back. But no, you can only will your way back gradually through doing things that other people also love and can be a part of. That really is the test of time and the test of community. The things that we are missing have to do with democratic greatness. Big theme in Tocqueville, a big mystery. Are we going to enviously, resentfully destroy everything great about humanity because not everybody's great? Or are we going to be able to share in what it is that the great can offer? Tocqueville pointed out, and Peter was a big proponent of this opinion, that not everything in America is modern. America was modern-made, but there are lots of things that were brought over from the old world, and the most aristocratic and most obvious of them being the family and the religion. They were so aristocratic because they told Americans, you are not merely matter in motion, you are not merely a leaf in the wind. 
you are a human being, born of human beings, who can bear human beings, you can be part of this great continuity of human action. You can be responsible for yourself and to others and for others. This was the basis of morality. And people are being stripped of this hope. Right. But the alternative is, is if you think of one of Peter's last books, is to be stuck with the cultivation of ordinary virtue in the face of this insanity. And that's something we can do. We, we, it, it is always open to us as a possibility to build virtues individually and in communities. And it's the only thing left. I mean, one way of putting it is it was always the only thing left. Yeah, but it's an option we have long discarded. We were going to replace virtues by institutions, systems that work rationally. They were going to control chance and we wouldn't have to bother. People know now that it doesn't work that way, but we do not as yet wish to acknowledge that in any public way. We don't want to confess to each other that actually we all hoped to get away easy. We watched as the economy was being corrupted, the politics. Now we're turning around and say, we would like leadership, please, because yet another crisis has come that scares us in a way nothing since 9-11 scared us. But for there to be ordinary virtue, there has to be extraordinary virtue. Well, we would need what we call leaders, but it doesn't tell you what are you supposed to do? What kind of person, first of all, are you supposed to be? It's abstract. Yeah. This isn't ruling and being ruled in turn. But exactly right. It's not real. Right. And so this re-education of associational America, of our longing to be with each other, that's a complicated mess of things. It's not just one thing. We're not just looking for jobs. We're not just looking for friends. We're not just looking for romance. We're looking for a bunch of things all at once. Right. Our own restlessness is hurting us because we do not dare encourage those people whose own restlessness leads them to want to help other people because they're impatient with circumstances and events and think they can do better. And it seems like we don't want to do that precisely because of how personal the relationship of rule and being ruled is. Each one of us would have to admit, you know, I need this guy or I, I have to help this guy. Mm -hmm. We prefer to create these insanely rich oligarchs that seem responsible to nobody and who are running experiments on the souls of our children. That's how they make their money. The more miserable you are, the more money Facebook and Twitter makes. Absolutely. This is an insane way of running an economy and a society. But we do so because nobody ever has to say, Mark Zuckerberg, I need you. The impersonality helps because you don't ever have to deal with another human being and say, I need help here. Well, and I mean, it may well be that the American experiment at this point, it may be failing under the thing that the old classical Republicans thought was most vital. Size and scale need to be of a certain level because we're, we're at this level where, you know, where we're asking, give us a leader who can somehow unite 360 million people spread across this vast country that has all this enormous wealth and power and is miserable in the middle of it. And... And so you say, like it's it's in in so many ways, it's easier to give authority to the unelected oligarchy, the unelected administrative state official who tell who regulates all these minute aspects of American life, rather than for a representative to vote on something and actually take you know be statesmanlike and relate as a representative of their people to their people. Uh, to other representatives, like for that to actually work, you'd need people who weren't in that sort of great abstract relation of there's all of us. And then there's little old isolated me. And, you know, Peter gives us clues for how to think about how to walk our way out of this. No thinker could give us a blueprint. If they could, it would be a bad one. And he knew that. But but I do tell people to read Peter because he gives us a way of thinking our way out of this mess. Yeah, clarity about our character is precious. Peter, he loved America, but he also chastised America. He was not pretending we were perfect until the day before yesterday, but he was also not pretending that we were rotten to begin with. Knowing us such that there's good and bad in there, and there's a kind of guarantee that there will always be good and bad there, because that's our nature, is reassuring, but it's also clarifying. Typically, Peter's phrases are ironic. We are stuck with virtue. Not, that is to say, excited by virtue. We are not possessed of great virtue. We are stuck with it. We would like to escape it, is implied there. And, you know, it's true. We did try to escape it in certain ways. But realizing that we are stuck with virtue, we might indeed learn to practice those virtues. And so also with the fact that we are homeless and at home in America. We are in a way at home with our homelessness. 
we have to realize that there's only so much that we can get out of life in order to be practical and serious about getting what is good, accepting that there's a necessity to things. We can't simply wish or fantasize our way out of our situation. We need reminders of these things and above all elaboration, explaining what is it like to be who we are and why it is that way. This is an education, not a blueprint. The blueprints can only come from those of us who face our situation and try our best. Peter, he wanted to help people prepare to do something worthwhile. He realized you have to inspire people's ambition and their abilities. What is strange about our times is that people aren't trying out a million different things. We are in danger for that reason. We are not allowing our restlessness to lead us to likely paths. Not all of them can succeed, but we can find out pretty quickly which ones are promising and put our shoulders to the wheel, get this wagon going again. But we don't have that yet. The generosity and the irony of Peter are needed today. We needn't despair, but we needn't be too full of ourselves, even in self-pity either. Yeah. No, I remember a phrase that sort of reminds me of him. You know, we need to cowboy up. <laughs> Which puts me in the mind of your Yellowstone essay, too. Yeah. And move on. You know, especially in his late years, like Clint Eastwood in a strange way, Peter pointed more and more to the need for American Stoicism studies, partly through the films of Jeff Nichols and Clint Eastwood. In the desire for freedom, that is to say, in America, there is quite a lot of manliness. As Tocqueville put it, American women are manly. It takes quite some spirit to deal with so much uncertainty. We indeed need to cowboy up. That's also a point of friendship neglected these days. People do not need self-esteem and they do not need support. What they need are friends, people with whom they can judge things and act. That is encouragement. That is the sort of thing that can inspire people. Yeah, we need to be tough-minded enough to face that this is a troubling situation and tough enough to do stuff, to not be lazy and self-pitying. Right. Well, I hope, Brian, we have also offered people some counsel, some advice about what it means to get clarity and get to action. So thank you very much for joining me. This has been our first official conversation. After years of working together, we never did a podcast. It's been wonderful. So we should do this again sometime. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to do it again sometime. All the best, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye.